Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that you appoint each day and we, every moment is a day that is filled with your goodness and your grace. And Father, as we look into the book of Psalms again today, I pray that we will be caught up in the wonder, the wonder of our anointed king, the son of David. I trust that we will see the beauty of our king, and may we praise him for his goodness and his grace to us. Bless this day. Bless our pastor as he opens a series in the book of Hebrews, and may you bless him and through him bless us to, to see how uh, you so loved us that you sent the ultimate revelation of sending your son to be here on the earth to die for us, to give us atonement for our sins. And for this, we praise your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So, now last week, um, we were talking about a chiasm. And I should have done this before. I wasn't thinking about this. I want to pull this out quickly, or at least turn it, or do something with it. And I want to talk about what a chiasm is, and not go over the edge here, and not bang up the piano. My wife doesn't like it when I bang on pianos. Either way, I'm, I once tried to learn piano, and the teacher quit. Okay, so we, we, we talked about a chiasm, and one of the characteristics of good literature is the use of chiasm, and you may not even be aware of that and what it is, uh, but a, uh, it, it's, this is what we're going to find in Psalms 15 to 24, that is a huge chiasm, okay? Now, uh, to be sure we know uh, what's going on and what's happening in a chiasm, uh, I want to... Uh, that's what I want. The, the chiasm comes from a Greek letter of the alphabet. Some of you might call it a chiasm. I'm calling it a chiasm for a reason. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which a lot of people call it chi. Um, that's an American anglicized pronunciation. Uh, and uh, so when we're... Uh, you see two Greek letters up there. You have a letter like this which um, is a key and a capital letter like this. All right, so a chiasm. This is, by the way, the beginning of Christ's name. So you would have a row. Christos. So that, that's the name of Christ. Okay, it begins with a key. Now, that's not necessarily key to a chiasm, chiasm, but... What you have here is in a chiasm, I'm going to make it bigger over here. You have a point that you make, you develop the point. But at the end, you come back to the point, and this one has also developed in the middle of it, okay? So what happens is, it defined, it's a verbal pattern in which the second half, the second half, and that's this side, the second half of an expression is balanced against the first half. 
it kind of folds up here like you could you could fold this up like you do a chair or something so really what what happens is for for us in literature as what we saw last week you will have an a and a b excuse me and a c and we do the indentation to show the development to a central point, the core. And then it comes back out. Okay, so that's, this is more the point. But it's, it's actually, look where they call it a chiasm, working this way as it works down. But then it's going to work back out. For us, we can see it better coming back to its full point. By, by designing it this way. But that's where the name of this comes from. It's a parallel, parallelism set in reverse. We've been looking at two-line parallelisms where you say a line, and then, for instance, turn to Psalm 15.1. In Psalm 15.1, it begins there, and you will need a, a, a Bible, uh, New Testament, would, or Old Testament. It would help you if you had that out today. Uh, the line opens there in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell in your holy hill? That's a parallelism, isn't it? The two lines are saying the same thing. Does everybody see that? Okay. But he refers to the tent and to the holy hill. That's um, the parallel. Sojourn and dwelling. Parallel. So these are parallel lines. So what we're going to see here in Psalm 15 to 24 is how there's going to be parallels. But they're parallels in reverse as we go through it. So um, let me give you some examples of this, too, that may help you. I think, I think this will bring it together because it did for me. These are excellent uh, examples. You may have heard this statement before. Ask not what your country can do for you but ask what you can do for your country. All right, when you put that out, if I were to write that up there, and I don't want to take the time. By the way, you may know where that came from. That's back in the good old days, okay? I, I was like almost a teenager back then, so that tells you how old I am. But it's, it's uh, from John Kennedy's uh, inaugural speech. And, and by the way, I wish our country were still living by that principle. That's not what... Now, your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Instead, now we want government and, you know, everything to come to us. Um, so you have, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. You see how it's inside out, how it's reversed there, that statement? Or here's another one. When I was growing up, there was another commercial, and it wasn't really a commercial, it was uh, more of a, um, a public service announcement. It was to call our conscience, conscious to conscience to an, uh, be attentive to something, and so the statement was at the end of that: "A mind is a terrible thing to waste." Any, any of you remember that those commercials? All right, and that's when, well. I know Mitchell. You wouldn't know that. You're still, you're like my grandson. And so, uh, anyway, but what a comic did with that. Look how he made it a chiasm, or parallelism and chiasm, how he turned it inside out. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, 
but a waste is a terrible thing to mind. Think about it. You're not awake yet. A waste, a different waste, okay? It's a different waste. You get, okay. All right, I can tell the level here of my audience. Let me, so let me give you an example from Kermit the Frog. Okay, here's what Kermit the Frog would do with the line that says this, time flies when you're having fun, right? And it does. Or when you're getting older, but that's not the one we're talking about now. Time flies when you're having fun, and time's fun when you're having flies. Okay, that's, that's Kermit the Frog. All right, so do you, do you see what they're doing? They're taking the same words and putting them in a different order. Gives it an entirely different perspective. Now, let's look at the Scripture. These are in Scripture here and there. Uh, for instance, if you were to look at Genesis 9-6, it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. It's just worked inside out. It's worked like this way, and it comes back out to its original point. You see that? Or this one. Jesus used it too. And you know why they use these? Because it gets our attention and it's memorable. So, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the one balances the other in reverse, but teaches us a greater truth and it helps us see a bigger picture. Everybody with me? If you're asleep, raise your hand. Okay, one. I thought, Larry, I, I knew I could depend upon you to be there for me. Okay, so let's, let's uh, move forward here then because I had these statements for you, all right? But I wanted to read them because I didn't want you to get ahead of me. And there's the scriptures on that one. So let's check out the bookends here as we come to Psalm 15, and we're looking at, therefore, Psalm 15, 1, and Psalm 24, 3. I want you to see the bookends, that is, how it's turned inside out by seeing the first and the ending statement, so that they're basically the same. Psalm 51, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? All right, so I, I, I am interested. When I read that, and still every time I read it, I think to myself, yeah, who, who? Let me find out what are the requirements. I come to 24, and interestingly, I find basically the same statement. It's just using some synonyms. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? or ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Both of them use parallelisms. Okay, as first line is the same as the second line. Both of them is asking really the same question. And we're talking about the tent, the holy hill, the hill, the holy place. Those are along with temple. All those words are used throughout the book of Psalms to talk about God's dwelling place, either at Jerusalem or in heaven itself. So uh, here's, here's the, here are those two. So you see how that could be an A and an A1? Psalm 15.1 would be A, and Psalm uh, 24.3 would be A, A, A1. So you got A and A1. All right. So let's see then. So the 
Same questions, consider it in both. Let's discover what happens. And I had this up for you last week. As we see the two bookends, Psalm 15 and 25 down there, you see that uh, those two are parallel to each other. Psalm 16 then is about comfort after having said what it takes to ascend the hill of the Lord. We need some comfort when we read that, and you'll see why in a minute. Because what Psalm 15 says, I tremble and fear. So I need comfort. As we're working back out, comfort comes in Psalm 23, just before 24, to bring us comfort. Psalm 23. I bet you even know that psalm. And you know how comforting it is. Who's your shepherd? Yourself? No. We have a Lord. All right. Then, Psalm 17 is about hope and resurrection because there are terrible things happening to you in your life and you're struggling and you need hope. So not only do we get comfort, we get hope and hope through resurrection. And then down in Psalm uh, 22, we find hope. It starts out very bleak in 22, and that's where we're going to take some time today. And yet there's death and resurrection there, which brings us the hope that we need. We'll see that. Psalm 18, we see deliverance for David, who is the king. Psalms 20 and 21, the king is delivered. Are you seeing parallels here? Now, you're seeing them on the screen, but you're saying, is that in the Psalms? I, I, I can hear your grinding there. And then Psalm 19 is the center of it all, where it talks about the glory of God in his creation, in his law, in his redemption. So there at the very center, what, what holds us uh, in safety, in comfort, in hope, in deliverance is who God is as creator, who God is as the lawgiver and covenant maker and the redeemer of our souls. All right. So I, I see you're not impressed. So let's, let's go into it and see how this happens. You say, I mean, really, is it? really this intricate is it going i mean are are you reading stuff into it and there is a sense you do have to look and watch what's going on here but it's this is going to give you a greater impression that all scripture is given by inspiration of god is profitable for doctrine for you for reproof for correction for instruction and righteousness it's all there and god uh didn't make everything average. He made things good. So this is good literature. And as the temple priest, as David and the temple priest put the Psalms together, down to Ezra and Nehemiah, they were very careful about the construction and the order in which the Psalms were written. Now, we've already talked about book one and two is about David. David in pre-king, and then in book two, he is reigning, okay? So there's an order there. We'll see the further orders later on. Psalm 15 now. Let's, let's get to that. Get, get that in your Bible if you don't already have it. Uh, the psalmist had written it in an earlier psalm, Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So who is, who is going to ascend? It's begging that question, isn't it? And, and so this is, it, we have seen that... Uh, 
evil cannot dwell with him. I know that I'm a sinner. I know evil dwells within me. And Psalms 11 to 14, as we saw last week, uh, talk about the wicked. And it talks about our own sinfulness. And it talks about the folly of not believing there is a God to whom we are accountable and who will judge us. So you go back over and look at the, just the beginning lines of those psalms and you will find that. So our, our question to be asked is, who can dwell with God? Who can come into his presence? How, how can sinners do that if God cannot tolerate evil in his presence? Now, the structure of Psalm 15, therefore, is seen in questions and answers. So there are two questions being asked here, which are parallel and we've already seen that, the answers. He will guide us through a series of statements written in parallel thoughts describing what our hearts and lives should reflect as God's people who worship without hypocrisy. He who walks blamelessly. By the way, just kind of think through my life if you don't want to think about yours. All right, Think, think about life itself. He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks what it Truth in his heart. So he walks, he does, he speaks. That's what he does. There are things that he does not do. He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. In, whom I, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, does not change, who does not put out his money to interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. All right, so if you live like that, you're going to live a solid, firm, confident life. I do no wrong. I won't ask you to raise your hands how many of you meet up with that particular standard. That, that's tough. That's hard. Man, when you read that, does it cause you to tremble a little bit? Does it make you say, uh, uh, how, how am I going to get through this then? Uh, maybe you find yourself somewhat like David is concerned. And so if we turn the page... To Psalm 16. What's his first words after this? I don't know if the Psalms were arranged consecutively at this point. I don't know if he's writing this down. Next morning he got up. He came inspired for the new Psalm. But I know David wrote it because it says so here. These superscriptions are part of the word of God. I take them that way. Because that's the way they were in the Hebrew Bible. That's the way I accept it. So what's his first words? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Okay, I'm not taking refuge in my goodness, in my righteousness, in my holiness. I need to take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's none that is righteous, no, not one. And I am not righteous. So I need a refuge from the wrath of God. I need a refuge from myself. I need a rescue as well as a refuge. So, this is a comfort. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, not in my righteousness, not in all my good deeds, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, says Paul in the book of Titus. 
So why? Because I have no good apart from, from his Lord. And comfort comes from the refuge David has found. David chooses to rest in God, to seek his counsel, and to set the Lord always before him. And then he shall not be, notice this, shaken. You see, the previous psalm, you said you will not be moved if you do all of these things. Get the, get the list right. Here's the positives you got to do. Here's the negatives you must avoid. Here's the things that you've got to do. So if you, he says, you will not be shaken, the end of Psalm 15. Here in 16, he says, my refuge is in you, and I know if I'm in you, I will not be shaken. Do you see that? Okay. So we've got a standard in A. When we go back to that other, we got a standard there. But then also, there is that sense of, I don't know that I really meet up with that standard. Now, I say I don't really know. I know I don't. Okay? So I need something else. So he is giving us a word of comfort. And therefore, David here in Psalm 16 can rejoice and feel secure. Notice that in verses 9. And, and, and then that he will be in God's presence. This is his hope. That's where his hope is set. In God. And he will be in the presence of God. Because he's made God his refuge. And note here the shadow of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David speaks, and we'll talk about this later, he speaks from two horizons, his own horizon where he is, but there is a greater king that we will see who also went through death but was not abandoned to death. Sheol, by the way, is a synonym for death. The grave is what it's talking about. Everybody with me? So this is David's comfort. Uh, and by the way, uh, this, that, what I just read to you, how do you know that that verse 10 that you just read to us speaks about Jesus? Because the New Testament tells us uh, Paul, or Luke writes of one of Paul's sermons that he uses that as a text to show it was speaking about Christ. So the New Testament really sheds a lot of light on these things to illumine us, and later we will see that in greater depth. So Psalm 17 is about hope and resurrection. If you note particularly verse 7, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So, uh, three words in particular I want you to note here. Steadfast love, number one, that word is the word of grace in the Old Testament that we see in the New Testament. Steadfast love is seen throughout the Psalms. It's the Love of a covenant-keeping God. God will keep his promises because in his promises, he has promised to love us and be faithful in that love. So this is a steadfast love. Not only that, again, he seek, we seek refuge because he is the only Savior. See the word Savior there? We need a Savior to save us. And then his... Hope 
in verse 15, because of the steadfast love of God, because of a Savior, because He takes refuge in that Savior and in that love. As for me, David writes, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Whose righteousness? His own? No. But in God's. Then, uh, he says, I shall be satisfied in your likeness. So, that's 17. So, this is hope and resurrection. You will not leave my soul in hell or in Sheol. So, Psalm 18 is about deliverance for David and his seed. Verses 4 to 6 reveal the agony of David when he was being pursued by Saul. And Saul was looking to kill him. And I want you to sense his emotions here as I read verses 4 through 6. Let me get to Psalm 18. Ah. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield, death, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for my help. By the way, notice the parallelisms. We've talked about those. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry uh, to him reached his ears. See, he cried, but it also reached his ears. There's a development there of intensity in that poetic structure. So here, this is the agony of David to be encompassed by death, destruction, entangled with the cords of death, the snares of death confronted him. This was a very deep, hard time for David. But I want you to notice his confidence remains in God because what are the words before this? I love you, Lord, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Because here's what happened. I was in the cords of death. I was going through all of this. But I love the Lord because He is the one who rescued me. He became my refuge. So we're looking for deliverance for David and his seed in 19. Then we come to 20, uh, uh, 18. Then we come to 20. So in 20, this particular, or I say 20, 19, uh, here we are told of the glory of God as creator of all things. 19, 1 through 6. The goodness of God as the lawgiver in 19, 7 through 10. And then the grace of God as redeemer in 11 to 14. And by the way, don't miss the statement here. In verse 11, he speaks of the law of the Lord and his covenant. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping of them is great reward. Okay. What 
I, I'm sure I've been studying, so I know. This should hearken back to something in your mind immediately when he talks about either being warned or receiving great reward. Something that will repeat throughout the Psalms again. That there are only two ways. Okay? And these two ways will be either, will either give us warning of judgment and destruction because the way of the wicked shall perish, Psalm 1 tells us. Or it will bring blessing. And what was the difference? Meditating in the law of the Lord. Where do these words appear? In a section here about the law of the Lord and him as God, as the law giver. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And he goes on and on there till he comes out. Moreover, by them, by your word, by meditating in this word, then your servant is warned. In keeping of them, there is great reward. The great reward is the blessings of God and the confidence that we have that we are in the way of life and will be blessed. So, questions about that? Are you following and seeing the connections? This psalm connects back with Psalm 1 and the two ways. Now, back to Psalm 19. His heart has been in awe of God's creation. His spirit has been enriched by God's word and therefore his soul has been cleansed by God's grace here in Psalm 19. And having declared the glory and praises of God, he concludes this with a uh, words of a prayer. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There he comes back again. It's God who brings redemption to my sinful soul. So this is the embedded core. Chapter 19, our Psalm 19, is the embedded core of 15 through 24. So we are uh, there in the center at this point. Here's our anchor point that holds us sure. God, the mighty creator, God, the lawgiver and covenant keeper, is the one who redeems his people. With me? So, now we start coming back out. We saw in 18 where the king was delivered here in 20 and 21. He talks about the king. You see, he talks about the anointed king of verse 6 of Psalm 20, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Uh, And uh, then he talks about the king in verse 9. Now I know that the Lord saves the anointed. The king rejoices. And as we come to 21, the king trusts in the Lord. He rejoices in the Lord there in 21. So those two, the king is being delivered. I know I'm working through this fast. You can go back and check it out later and have questions. Let me know. So then we come to Psalm 22. So we're seeing all these things happening. But then suddenly the whole of the psalm section here, this whole chiasm also surprises us. Of all the psalms, the 22nd psalm is the one that's most unique. The heading declares it is a psalm of David. But where 
where can we find in David's life such experiences as we read about, such agony, such suffering as described in the words of this psalm? Uh, if you're familiar with the psalm, you know what I'm talking about even before I say any more about it. But unlike most of the psalms where he suffers, there is no call for vengeance, revenge, vindication. And then there is the fact that he admits no fault as to why he is suffering, as he sometimes does. See, normally in psalms where he starts giving this kind of discussion, he talks about his own failures, or he talks about the enemy, and, and asks God to take vengeance upon them, because I've done no wrong here. Okay? So, even the most casual reading of this psalm prompts us, though, to think not in Old Testament terms, but in New Testament scene and the crucifixion of Jesus. That's, and I'm going to work through this psalm, and you'll see why in a moment. The terms and phrases David uses are distinctively linked with the events of the Lord's death on the cross. We even read lines that appear to be direct quotes, even though the psalm is written a thousand years before the crucifixion. So, this psalm has been called the fifth gospel, as well as the gospel according to David. And James Montgomery Boyce says that it is the best description in all the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. The gospels have the stories of the crucifixion, but have you ever noticed how, how uh, brief they actually are and how you don't get all the descriptions there? He's, the Gospels use an economy of words. But here in Psalm 22, it seems to break out. Here is how it breaks out. What do you see up here? You see the chiasm, the chiasm? Okay, we've got a chiasm within a chiasm. You talk about complex here. Beautiful complexity to teach us simple truth. That's the way you have to look at this. So let me just look here through these with you. 22, 1 and 2. We begin with distress. And we're going to go through this in a minute and, and see it because I want you to see the parallels. So it begins with distress. How is this going to end, though? Look at the bottom line here. In 29 to 31, it ends in a celebration. Hmm. Okay, so then in 3 through 5, second line there, trust and deliverance because there's all these troubles, but he's still going to trust in God and he is seeking deliverance. When you come to the end there, the second one up from the bottom, there's repentance and worship because of something that has happened. We see in 6 through 8, Someone is despised. By the time you come down to 22 to 25, they're not despised. You see the coordination? And then in 9 through 11, we're going to read the words, Lord, be not far from me. I need you right now. 19 to 21, same phrase is going to show up. Be not far. In 12 and 13, we're surrounded by bulls and lions. In 16 to 18, surrounded by dogs and lions. And right at the core, the central feature of, of this is the dust of death 
someone dies. Okay, that's the chiasm. Now, let's work through this. By the way, I, I, I just had no time this week to do this. I will try to put this down, if you'd like, both of our chiasms here so you have those and hand them out uh, next week, Lord willing. <laughs> you never know what a day may bring forth. All right, so let's go through it. Psalm 22, if you've got it there, you've got some stuff on the screen here, but I'd prefer you see it in your own Bible. You'll remember it better. But you do whatever you need to do. Here is the Psalm of David. It begins with that cry of distress. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? It's a very strong statement. Hmm. That's the very words of Jesus in Matthew 27, 46. Now, with that, though, even saying that, David then writes an affirmation of trust. Verse 3. It says, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Uh, anybody spot anything there, uh, a repeated word? You look for repetitions in the Psalms. How about trusted? Trusted, trusted. Trusted. So he's crying to God because here is his trust and he's trusting here for deliverance. Um, the suffering intensifies here. Or wait a minute, let me see. Uh, he, he is despised. Look, look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. The despised king in verses 6 and 7 is followed by a taunt. Look at verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Uh, this man, David, he delights in his God. Let's see what God can do for him. Where do we hear that? In Matthew's gospel. As the crowd looking up at the cross, surrounding Jesus at the cross, cries out, Oh, you trusted in the Lord. You talked about the Lord. You said that he is your father. He said, Oh, you trust in him. You delight in him. Let's see what he will do with you. It was ugly scene. And here, it's an ugly scene. Things intensify in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. Do you know why that is? Well, if we take it to the cross, which we can, because there's parallels to that, uh, Luke um, 23 especially. Bones are out of joint because if you were being crucified, you've been nailed here in the wrist. And often you hear people talk about the hand. The hand would never have supported the weight. It's always in the wrist. And we have found, archaeologists have found men who were bones of men who were crucified. And it went between those bones right here in the wrist to hold them. Okay? I can show you a picture sometime if you want to see. But holding up like this because when you are hanging with your full weight on a cross and you're held by nails, and there was a, uh, a, a small seat. Uh, uh, what is it, Sedula? It was sitting there. So there was a little 
piece of wood that would help support. But in order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up to expel. The entire hours on the cross were spent with Jesus pulling himself up and down under the weight of his body and the weight of our sin. This is such a moving, dramatic picture that he is there. And this is showing again this death that is coming upon him and and the, the, the suffering that he endured for us. He, said, he says here, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. The heart is expanding and it's, it's ready to burst. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. All this in John 19, other passages that talk about what Jesus was suffering for us and for our salvation. The lots were cast. Uh, By the way, 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Where did this ever happen to David? Where? It didn't. David, we're told in the New Testament, was a prophet also. Acts chapter 2. God gave him insight through his own suffering, which was minor, to the suffering that his Savior would endure. And so his hands and feet were pierced. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me and divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. In Matthew 27, 35. But then we're getting here to a, a, a very interesting shift he does say, and show you this, this wording here, verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. That's one of our points of the chiasm. Don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. He calls and cries out to God. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of of the lion. Okay, so here, here we are. We're, we're coming right down to the point, and he cries for deliverance because something is approaching. And what happens? What's the next line? Verse 21. You have rescued me. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What is this rescue? How did it come? What happened? All we know here is this point in the psalm. David is rescued. And the son of David also suffers to the point of death. Because we will also read here uh, a little bit later about that death. And and, And in this rescue, okay, he has been rescued. Verse 22 the shift here, the, the hinge is 21 and 22. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And one of the th- interesting things is that following the death of Jesus, 
There was a command given at his resurrection to go tell my brothers. And he says here, I will tell of your name to my brothers. There, there are so many parallels in all of this. Further, all nations of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and shall worship him for the kingship belongs to him. All nations of the earth. Did all nations of the earth bow down to David? No, but they will to the son of David. And they will turn. That's a word for repentance, by the way. They will turn to him. And so the celebration begins. Righteousness is proclaimed. And look at the end of this psalm. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Hello, that's you. He has done it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Last verse, 31. 22, 31. And I want you to just pause for a minute and look at those words. This particular expression here, he has done it. It's a Hebrew word, kasha, um, means to procure, to do, to perform a work, to accomplish something. And it could be translated this way. Wow. That's a, that's a wow moment when you see it. So here at 22, we see where the deliverance comes from and why we give the glory to God for what he did. It is finished. But the psalm isn't. Well, the psalm is in a sense, but but the, but the bigger chiasm now. So, all right, so there was the the chiasm within the chiasm. All right, so now we're coming back out and we're looking for that comfort. All right, does this give us comfort to know it is finished? All right, this, we, you read that in light of what Jesus said, it is finished. And so, Psalm twenty three then says, oh, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not." He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he has the Lord as his shepherd. For us, Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep. And that's why Jesus then told us in John chapter 10. He's the shepherd. He watches over us. He's the door to the sheepfold. He's the entry, the gateway into security. He is the refuge for you. And he will be until that day when we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we too have a great encouragement from our great shepherd. You know what that encouragement is? This is one of my favorite benedictions in Scripture. From the book of Hebrews that our pastor will begin today, Lord willing, I trust he is. 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so the anointed king, the beloved son, has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Psalm 22 is high drama, followed by this wonderful comfort. And so then we return to where we started, come to that chiasm where we're everything coming to the resolution. Sometimes, you know, somebody may be playing a song and they get interrupted and it stops at a place where in your mind, okay, there's no resolution there. Finish that song, you know. But here it finishes. So who shall ascend? All who know the Lamb, who is also the great shepherd of the sheep. Because it says there in verse 5 of 24, and he will receive blessing from the Lord. And what else does he receive from the Lord? What's next? Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Not his own righteousness. He receives righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, you've taken in a lot here. I, I hope that as you come to this, you feel the grandeur. Because I want you to look at 24. If you've got your... Or tw- yes, 24. So... Verse 7, let's read this as it's followed 22 and the comfort of 23. And now what does he look to in 24? Who's going to ascend to the hill? He said, let's go up the hill. Let's see what happens. Lift up your hands, O gates. Verse 7, 24, 7. I like that, 24, 7. We ought to think about this 24, 7, shouldn't we? I didn't think about that until it just hit me. Okay, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Ah, and he repeats the chorus, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Can you sense the grandeur, the chiasm, what it has done is built to this moment, grounded in Psalm 22, grounded in Psalm 19, comfort here in 23. But now it explodes in celebration, looking for the day in which we will gather with the king, the only one who can open the ancient doors. The only one who is worthy to stand on the holy hill brings us along with him to that place that we might praise. Lift up, lift up, praise to our God. And so, in in 25 26, 27, 28, 29, all these psalms are, and pastor preached on 29 last Sunday, is is showing, ascribing glory to the Lord. Praise our God for what he has done. And when you get to Psalm 30, it speaks speaks of the Lord's temple in Psalm 30 and his salvation for us. In fact, let me just check something out here to be sure I am right in Psalm 30. 
Psalm 30 is a song at the dedication of the temple. That's a superscription. So we have come to the temple. And Psalm 30 rejoices in the temple and God's salvation. And if Psalm 30 rejoices in Yahweh's salvation, 31 then will plead further for it as David commits his spirit to the Lord, which, by the way, is an echo again of Luke 23, 46. So we're just seeing all of this. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I've only got two minutes and I'm going to get to the next one because Psalm 32 has some other things for us. Um, didn't get as far as I wanted to, but I got as far as we needed to because this is a great place to stop uh, and just meditate on it. And uh, any questions? We've got a couple of minutes for questions. Assignment for this next week is go back and read Psalm 15 all the way through to Psalm 24. Capture it for yourself. See the chiasm. I wish I had that um, chiasm for you to hand out to you so you could kind of follow along. Maybe I should see if Doug can send that out or something this week rather than waiting until next week to get it. But uh, I think that it's... And then it's the Psalm 22, the progression there. Questions? Comments? Yes, sir. I know we've been talking about a lot of like a literary device, but would you are you also saying essentially that I mean it seems like to me he's laying out a logical argument as well inside this chiasm. A chiasm is a logical argument. It's just stated a different way. The Apostle Paul will lay it out as we sometimes do in a way, even though he has chiasms also. But he will lay it out, all right, here's my point. Now let me support the point and support the point again and support the point again. Now let's talk about another point. And <laughs> it goes that way. It's an outline for most. This is an outline in a different way that we normally don't think about. It, it's, it's like reaching the hand in and then pulling it back out. See what we've got. Okay. Does that, no, did that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it yeah. seems like he's laying out. You know, he starts off with questions. He's made some assumptions and observations. Sure. He's driving home his primary, like this is the theme. Yeah. Yeah. And then if that's true. Then walks this, back out of it yes, walks back out of it. As exactly. saying, well, if that is true, then we recircle back to this thing. That yep. This this is what was needed, and we got a solution here, and we work back out and see that, and so these two become the same, and we feel a sense of resolution and satisfaction. Ah, he has accomplished it, and and but this is this is a way that's was memorable for them. They used parallelisms, acrostics, repetitions, and chiasms uh, for them to remember things well. All right, and, and so continue working. And I would tell you also that for next week, um, if you would, um, we're going to start a, a new book, in, not a book in the Bible, but we're going to start book two which is David's reign, and, with, and there's the hope that David is going to fulfill all of God's promises, you know, okay? The Davidic covenant and th- everything. David's going to resolve it all. But there's a problem when you go through those Psalms. David's still sinning. David's still having troubles with enemies. We're not in the kingdom yet, though he is a king and has a kingdom. And so, so we... We see there in 42 and 43, everybody's saying, all, uh, at the very start of the book, look, read this for yourself. Uh, 
where is God? People are saying daily, continually. Two words in there. Daily, continually. Where is God? Well, yeah, but they don't know that because they're going through the experience. So where is God in all of this? And he says, oh, my soul, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. Psalm 42, 43, which originally were probably just one psalm because you see the themes connecting so strongly. And then, so read that. That's your, that's your top and tail and the bookends, we say. In the scripture, it's always good to read the scripture by reading the first chapter and then reading the end because the end tells you something about the beginning and what's going to happen in between. So you don't do that with a novel, but you, you do that with a Bible and you find out what the end is. Now, and in the end, Paul is Psalm 72. And it is, boy, it's exciting, triumphant. You know why? It's written by Solomon. And some think it's a prayer at Solomon's coronation. And boy, are they ever excited. It's not David, but it's the son of David. It's the seed of David. And the seed of David was going to rule forever. Solomon is our answer. Okay, well, on that happy note. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word to look at these psalms and the wonderful pictures and the poetry uh, the beauty of it because of the beauty of our God, our creator, our lawgiver, covenant keeper, our redeemer. Thank you that in, we, that in you we can find our refuge, our comfort, our hope. And so, Lord, help us to trust and rest in you. Bless us as we go to the next service. Bless Dennis Bullock as he opens the word of God to us. Lord, feed us. Lord, comfort us, encourage us, teach us that we might live to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you.